Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. We Americans like to think we invented democracy, or at least representational government. But in fact, the first parliament was held in England in 1258 hundreds of years before we were a twinkle in King George III's eye. And the interesting thing about that parliament was, it was was not the king's idea at all. In fact, he was very much against it. His barons forced it on him. And the leading baron is a man named Simon de Montfort, who historians still argue about today. His motives, why, for the first time he espouses the rights of common people. He takes away the rights, not just of the, of the throne, but also of barons, about the right of common people to serve in parliament. This morning's class moves just past where we ended last week. Last week we saw a king and his barons make very different decisions about power and authority. We saw a pope interfere with kings, their decisions, and their people. This was not unique to England or to France. The 1200s are an amazing time in history. Radical change was common, not what we think of when we think of the early Middle Ages. A great spiritual movement, second only to the Reformation in the 1500s, swept Europe. The followers of St. Francis and St. Dominic took their ideals and their ideas, not to the rich, but to the poor, for the first time. Among the new Franciscan friars who comes to England is a man named Roger Bacon, and he ends up teaching at Oxford, the new university at Oxford. The new order taught commoners to read and to write and to think. This is new, common people asking questions. They preach the rights and the worth of common people. Now today we like to say that education is a great leveler, that if, you all have, or if you're all well educated, it's a, it's, a, it's a flat playing field. We all have the same opportunities. To some extent that's true, but think about it from the viewpoint of somebody in the 1200s. You are the nobles, you are well educated. You already have a flat playing field. Suddenly, all your tenants are learning to read and write and asking questions. Education is as much an unleveler as it is a leveler, depending on which side of education you are when it occurs. Many of the people heard the Magna Carta read in Shire Courts and Village Greens. And the power of the Magna Carta was not so much in the fact that it restricted the authority of the king, but in the implied statement that all authority is restricted. And so the common people began to make demands and ask questions and want accountability from their own nobles, from their king, and from their popes. But the popes weren't paying attention Popes of the 1200s and the 1300s are not good representatives as a whole of what they espoused. Instead, they are fighting for temporal power. There are a number of wars over land. Christians fight Christians, and they're not paying attention to the questions that people are asking. There's a fierce war in England, I mean in Europe, between the Pope and Emperor Frederick over land, not over faith, not even over ideas, strictly for control of land and the power of kings. 
Crusades were called, not against the Muslims who held Jerusalem, but against new Christian sects with their new ideas. So when King John was forced to sign the Magna Carta, it was natural for him to ask the Pope to help him. And Pope Innocent did. He annulled the Magna Carta in a letter dated 24 August 1215. But it does not make it to England until the end of September, and it's too late. The Magna Carta has been read throughout the country. The people know what it says, and they will not accept the annulment. And so civil war breaks out. The barons are worried. The barons who are fighting the king are worried. And so they go to the French king and they ask for troops and support. And they promise that if the French king will give them troops, they will name his son, Louis, King of England. And so the Dauphin Louis brings troops and he lands in Kent pretty well unopposed in May of 1216. And he marches to London pretty much unopposed. But there's a slight problem. The barons are happy to have him there, but to the common people, it's a foreign invasion, no matter how good the intent is. These people are foreigners. As we learned last week, John retreats to the Fens, misjudges the tides, loses his jewels, catches a fever, and that, with the dysentery he already had, killed him. And so King John passes from history. There was some suspicion of poison, but no proof. So now the followers of John are kind of in a panic. John's son, Henry, is only nine years old. And the barons who oppose him have promised Louis the throne. So what they need to do is have a crowned king. It's harder to depose a crowned king than it is to declare a new king when there is no crowned king. And so they rush the little nine-year-old boy and his mother, Isabella, to Gloucester, and they crown him. 28 October, 1216. Now, there are, there are no coronation robes. The crown jewels are somewhere in the swamps and fens. And so the little boy is crowned with one of his mother's torques, one of those stiff gold collars that women wore in those days. Isabella was not a popular queen. Nobody recommended that she be the regent for the nine-year-old boy. And so within a year, she goes back to France, to Angoulême. You may remember from last week she was engaged when she met King John. And she disengages so she can marry the king. When she goes back to Angoulême as a widow, she marries her original fiancé. He ends up at war with France as well. He dies, and Isabella is accused of trying to poison the French king. The woman has an adventurous life. She has to flee for her life, and she goes to the abbey at Fontrevrault and dies there in hiding in 1246. And that's hard to say. If you think I'm going to say that again, you're wrong. <laughs> the new young king ends up with two co-regents, William Marshall and Hubert de Burgh, the justiciar. Now, William Marshall was a gallant, brave, experienced knight. He was a hero to the English people. He was popular and loyal. He had served Henry II, Richard, John, and now Henry III. The country is still at war. The French army is still there. They control London and most of southeast England. To win over the barons and public opinion, the regents, now with the Pope's approval, reissue the Great Charter with some changes. They reworded and deleted a number of clauses. Their explanation was, since some clauses in the former charter seemed weighty and doubtful, namely those clauses concerning scutages, forests, and rivers, those were put in respite until they can be discussed at a full council, until all the barons can come together. The clause establishing that 25-man watchdog committee is quietly omitted 
without a word. They do add two very interesting points, however. For the very first time, 21 is when heirs come of age. It dates back that far. And we're no longer talking guidelines. Remember the original charter talked about guidelines for the king. In this charter, there are no longer guidelines. The 1216 charter clearly states the changes are enacted law. The Magna Carta is the law of the land. And they promise the nine-year-old king will rule by the amended charter. Now, they don't proclaim it until November, but that's because they're still at war. The young king affirms the new charter when he sits in a parliament, so to speak, but a major meeting of the nobles in Westminster later that year. He will reaffirm it a third time in 1225 when he's 17 and considered old enough to be part of government. The idea of a contract between king and subject, an idea that was first written by Alfred the Great, then Canute and Aethelred the Unready, Anglo-Saxon kings, is now the basis of English law. It is to this day. When English law is gathered into a statute book a hundred years later, the first statute, statute number one, is the 1225 version of the Magna Carta. It is absolutely the linchpin for English common law. William Marshall died in 1219. His replacement was a gentleman named Peter de Roche. Now, he's from Poitiers in Aquitaine. He's a bishop of Winchester. He's also weak and greedy. His advice to the young king will be equally bad. Henry is crowned a second time at Westminster on 17 May 1220. He wears all new coronation regalia, new crown, new robe, new scepter. Had to replace it. But he's only 12 years old, so the regency continues. Hubert de Burgh really struggles to replace William Marshall. He's an able soldier. He does a good job of, con of controlling the still unruly barons. He uncovers uh, a plot to kidnap the young king. But he's not much of a strategist, militarily or politically. And so he cannot hold on to the English property in France. And he loses Aquitaine and cannot seem to get it back. Only Gascony is left. In 1227, Henry, now 20, assumed the rule. Hubert de Burgh remains chief justiciar. But the next year, Henry demands money for another French campaign. The treasury is bare. And so in 1232, Hubert de Burgh is charged with stealing the money. Now he didn't. It was all de Roche's idea. But it does create a political vacuum, which de Roche wanted. So with de Burgh disgraced, he recommends to the young king, well, you don't, you don't know your nobles very well. Why don't I pull in my friends and relatives from Poitiers? I know them. I can guarantee their service. All you have to do is agree to it. And I'll bring them here, and they can have all the powerful positions. And Henry agrees. The problem is Aquitaine and Poitiers are no longer English territory. And so the newcomers are considered foreigners, interlopers, taking those powerful positions. Richard William Marshall's son complains, and de Roche declares him a traitor. So Edmund Rich, Archbishop of Canterbury, with Richard Marshall, and a delegation of barons call on the king. They ask him to expel de Roche and all of his 
friends and family. Now, one of the things you will learn about Henry is he always agrees with whoever's standing there in front of him. And so Henry agrees. He should be learning the lesson his father John did not. You cannot afford to ignore the feelings of your most powerful subjects. But just as John did not learn it, Henry does not. The lesson sticks only for the moment, not for tomorrow. There are no portraits yet of kings. This is from a tapestry, and this is supposed to be the young Henry. The Benedictine monk and chronicler of the times, Matthew Paris, described Henry as of medium height and compact in body. One of his eyelids drooped, hiding some of the dark part of the eyeball. He had robust strength, but was careless in his acts. Oh, yeah. Henry married Eleanor, the daughter of Raymond Berenger, Count of Provence, on 14 January, 1238. Eleanor's sister was married to the King of France. It's a powerful family. It's a good marriage. Eleanor was beautiful. She was called La Belle. And she brings with her initially a small court of poets and painters and musicians. Henry falls in love with everything French. And so he invites more nobles from Provence and from France to come to England. And he showers them with honors and land. Haven't we been here before? <laughs> the barons are outraged. And Henry lets the new nobles do anything they want. When people complain, the new French nobility replies, what have we to do with English law and custom? Sounds like Edward the Confessor and his Normans, doesn't it? But then Edward, the confessor, was Henry's hero, his model. Now, it wasn't all bad. This influx of French culture sparks English culture, and it needed it. England had been renowned for some time, in fact, since Anglo-Saxon times, for the beauty of its tapestry and its weaving. But now English artists and writers emerge. Anglo-Saxon and Norman songs of war and adventure take on more sophisticated forms and subject matter. In fact, the stories of King Arthur develop into their final form during this time. And for the first time, we have the emergence of protest songs, mostly political, many of them satire. But Henry's such a great subject for satire. And so most of them are about Henry. Henry would probably have been an architect had he not been king. And so a lot of the experts he calls in are architects and builders. Old churches are torn down. Castles are revamped. New buildings come into the skyline of London, Winchester, Oxford. And they're all in the new Gothic style. Now, despite Henry's love of Edward the Confessor, in spite of the fact that he made Edward his personal saint, he decides he's going to tear down Westminster and replace it with a cathedral more in keeping with the glory of Henry and Edward. He, he uh, has painters add murals of Anglo-Saxon life, Edward's time, on the walls of the new castle. That's not new, despite the fact that not a one of them married an Anglo-Saxon woman. Ever since the reign of Henry II in 1154, the kings have been claiming Anglo-Saxon roots. Unfortunately, we don't know how they did it, but it must have been an interesting, kind of convoluted claim. Henry names his firstborn Edward after Edward the Confessor. And he has a mural of Edward's life on his bedroom wall. First thing every morning, last thing every night. It's hello and good night to Edward. 
Now, Edward demolishes, as I said, the Westminster Cathedral, builds a new one, the one that we know today, with minor changes since then. He makes Westminster Hall and Palace the home of his family and his court. It is the seat of government and justice. For the first time in England, we now have a permanent stable court. They're not, as they did in the last couple of weeks, they're not on horseback going from castle to castle. Now there's a place where the power mongers and the power brokers can congregate. Interestingly enough, when he finishes the central part of Westminster Cathedral, which is a monument to Edward the Confessor, he moves Edward's body into it. This is now the seat of government. At the heart of the seat of government is Edward the Confessor's body. And right beside it is Edward's wife, Edith. What makes it funny is, you all remember, Edward the Confessor worked so hard to keep the Godwins out of power. And now Henry, who idolizes Edward, without even thinking about it, brings Godwin's daughter into the heart of power. So he obviously didn't know as much about Edward as he thought he did. Now the councils that the Magna Carta said had to be held regularly are now held in Westminster instead of at different places in the country. And the barons as they come, each time they're called into council, they're madder, angrier and they're bolder. And they get closer and closer to demanding an accounting of the projects and the buildings that Henry calls them to pay for. Because you already have to call the council, the barons together, if you're going to raise taxes, because that's where the money comes from. And so when they come, they know he's going to ask for taxes. And every time they come, they're a little bit closer to saying, not till you ante up and explain to us the policies and the, and the programs that this money will support. The problem is that it, Henry's rubbing their nose in it every time he calls the council meetings in Westminster because they're looking at this building in progress every time he calls them. The rebuilding of Westminster Cathedral took 39 years and 46,000 pounds. In today's dollars, it's a lot of zeros. And so every time they come, they're looking at this and thinking, this is not what I want my taxes to go for. Edward the Confessor paid for the original cathedral out of his own pocket. Henry expects taxes to pay for the new building, and he didn't ask anybody about it before he started. The barons threatened to withhold money. We will not pay you. This is the first time we know the people are experimenting with the golden rule. You know the golden rule. <laughs> he who has the gold makes the rules. <laughs> They're not yet parliaments, but the word parliament is beginning to be used in the 1230s. Across London, Henry is also building. He put the wall, that huge strong wall around the Tower of London. Wakefield Tower inside, and he's the one who builds the menagerie inside. In case you haven't guessed by now, building, architecture, and Edward the Confessor are Henry's passions. He is the first king pictured doing something other than fighting, being crowned, or praying. And Henry is often depicted meeting with Masons and builders. He's the architect, the master builder, and all these people are running around building because Henry is having them do it. Henry had reaffirmed the amended Magna Carta three times, but he's not paying attention to it. He is not ruling according to it as he promised, especially when it comes to taxes. You remember the barons put a lot of tax relief in the Magna Carta. Henry is even bringing back scuttage. And that is the tax the barons must pay in lieu of military service. Worst of all, when he, when he uh, puts Scottage back in place, he does not use the money 
for military campaigns. So he's taking taxes under false pretenses. Queen Eleanor was also ticking off the barons. She was too expensive. More and more people are coming from Provence. The court is more expensive every year. Now, since Anglo-Saxon times, all the cargoes that were unloaded at the quay, known as Queen Tithe in London, paid a toll that went to the queen. That's how she supported her court. Eleanor has a growing court. She needs more money. She starts forcing the ship owners, especially the ones bringing in the expensive cargoes, to land only at her quay. So she gets the money. Eleanor's expense list is still available to us. We know what she was asking for money to do. And on it is 4,017 pounds for secret gifts and alms. She was charging people, she was, except the, the ship owners who had to unload at her quay, the money they paid her, she used for charity. So she's charging the people for her charitable amounts. And they knew it. And they got angrier and angrier. And then Henry levied a new four pound a day tax on the city of London to support a new white bear that he had added to his menagerie. Pork barrel funding is not a 20th century invention. <laughs> now Henry is out asking for military funds. You would think he would be a soldier. Henry is a terrible soldier. But he is a good negotiator. He does negotiate some of the best treaties in English history. The Treaty of York with Scotland in 1237 established a strong alliance with Scotland and more or less, more or less established the same boundaries between the two countries that we have today. The Treaty of Woodstock in 1247 with Wales did exactly the same thing. In 1250, Henry announces he's going on crusade. More scuttage has to be paid, but he does not go on crusade. There was trouble in the papacy again, or maybe still. And in 1254, the Pope convinced Henry to use the money he had gathered to go on crusade to support the Pope's war in Sicily. A man named Manfred had seized Sicily from the Pope, and the Pope wanted it back. So he told Henry, if you'll use that money and your troops and help me take Sicily back, I will make your second son, Edmund, king of Sicily. Edward agreed. The barons are st even more upset. They don't even know where Sicily is. If France is now a foreign country, <laughs> Sicily's on the backside of beyond. You know, all this just to make their, his second son a king of some country they don't even know about. Henry takes troops and money to Sicily. It is not a completely successful campaign. So in 1266, the French join in the battle for Sicily. They do win Sicily back, and the Pope makes Charles of Anjou king of Sicily, not Edmund. As far as the barons are concerned, Henry is John all over again. He taxes them unjustly. He wastes resources in foreign wars. He gives away land without, fi without fighting for it. He's got all these foreign advisors. What's different? But more than the barons are unhappy now. Just as several of the archbishops had brought along talented commoners to serve them under Henry II's reign, now we have a growing number of cathedral schools and those two universities at Oxford and Cambridge. And they're turning out highly educated, very ambitious young men, mostly commoners, who are going into the church and into the new government offices. And they're looking around and they're there because of the Magna Carta. They're there because of the new spirit of law and government. And how long is that going to last? 
how long are their jobs going to last if King Henry continues to ignore the Magna Carta. And so people begin to even talk about maybe it's time to bring back that watchdog committee, a clause that was dropped quietly from the 1215 Magna Carta. By 1258, the kingdom was almost bankrupt. The previous year's harvest had failed. Famine was everywhere. Matthew Paris described it. Owing to the shortage of food, an innumerable multitude of poor people died, and dead bodies were found everywhere, swollen through famine and livid, lying in fives and sixes, in pigsties and dunghills in the muddy streets. 28 April, 1258, seven barons, led by Richard de Clare, Earl of Gloucester, Roger Bigod, Earl of Norfolk, and Simon de Montfort, Earl of Leicester, ride to Winchester, fully armed. They clank into the castle. They do leave their swords by the door as they go into the main hall to greet Henry. Now, you remember Henry and that great backbone he has, right? Okay. They tell Henry they've come to free him from his corrupt foreign council. Matthew Paris tells us Henry responded. He acknowledged the truth of the accusations and humbled himself, declaring that he had too often been beguiled by evil counsel and made a solemn oath at the shrine of St. Edward that he would fully and properly amend his old errors and show favor and kindness to his native-born subjects. Anybody want to buy a bridge? <laughs> a sullen Henry also agrees to a parliament at Oxford. Twelve of his supporters, twelve of his barons, and twelve representatives chosen by the barons themselves will meet. The purpose was to decide how, how, how our kingdom shall be ordered, rectified, and reformed in keeping with what they think best to enact. Henry makes the same mistake the Confederation Congress made in 1787. He's too vague in his instructions. On 11 June 1258, the 24 men met at Oxford. They produce a document called the Provisions of Oxford. It transferred a great deal of Henry's power to a council of barons, 15 of them, and only three can be chosen by the king, by Henry. The other 12 are chosen by the barons themselves. They are reinstating the watchdog committee from the Magna Carta. The council would appoint the great offices of state, control the exchequer, supervise the sheriffs and local officials, and advise the king in good faith regarding the government of the kingdom. And they called the kingdom a community of the realm, communitas regni. On the local level, four elected knights in each shire would be responsible for co collecting complaints and grievances and delivering them to the justiciar. And the justiciar is now sort of the attorney general for the country. Sheriffs would be selected from the local community. The king cannot appoint them from other shires. They will be put on salary and will serve for only one-year terms. Pretty amazing, huh? And the king's foreign favorites got their eviction notices. Go home. Simon de Montfort told one, you will either lose your castles or lose your heads. Your choice. Think about this. This is 1258. 1258. And they're asserting the right to approve the king's appointments. Review 
the funding for his projects. Veto them if necessary. Sound familiar? And it's 1258. The provisions of Oxford go on to say the king's sovereignty is conditional on his accountability to the representatives of the community of the realm and his ability to guarantee the well-being of all his people. The provisions of Oxford are a breathtaking leap toward a constitutional monarchy, and it's 1258. Now, we think we have divisions and problems between conservatives and liberals today. Can you imagine the impact when the Oxford provisions get out and people everywhere are reading them? People were probably hyperventilating all over the country. Where did this come from? But the provisions of Oxford also did something unprecedented. They introduced the concept of an English state, a community of the realm. It's the birth of nationalism, the idea that a people and a place constitute an identity. They also spark a powerful reform movement, the most radical until the English Civil Wars of the middle 1600s. Now the commons play no, play no part in writing the provisions of Oxford. Those 24 men were the only ones involved in the writing of it. But outside, the people of Oxford know what's going on. People inside taking notes, come out and talk to them. And so there are parades, there are speeches, there are bonfires in support of the provisions. The people are aware. They're no longer just the victims. They are at least active observers. Henry, of course, did not appreciate the provisions of Oxford. His reaction was very much like his father's with the Magna Carta. Why don't they take my kingdom? He will not go quietly. The more they push, the more he clings to his traditional power. His oldest son, Prince Edward, also rails against the Oxford provisions. But in time, both are forced to sign them. The provisions of Oxford were proclaimed in Latin, French, and English. A copy of the English text was sent to every sheriff in every shire with instructions to read it seven times a year so every man will understand them. Many of the nobles of the realm join in the reform, and for the first time, so do many of the clergy. Most notably, Walter de Canaloup, Bishop of Worcester, and the Franciscan scholar, Adam Marsh. The man who eventually, though, leads the reform, and who has come down through history as the absolute model for uncompromising English resolve, is Simon de Montfort and a more unlikely reformer you will not find. He's not even English. He's every bit as foreign as the foreigners the barons just kicked out of the country. His father, also named Simon, was a fanatic, a crusader against other Christians. The elder Simon fought to support papal bulls. His son fights to support the Magna Carta and the freedom of common people. They're not even on the same planet. Simon is complex. He's contradictory. He's very human. He gives his life for the rights of common people. He becomes their voice. And yet at the same time, he allows his family to fatten on the lands of his enemies. And so historians have a great deal of trouble with Simon. But he's human. But let's spend a little time with this most unlikely reformer. The de Montfort family took their name from a hill between Paris and Chartres called 
Montfort la Marie. And I've got that written here somewhere for you, I think. Nope, didn't. Okay. Their connection to England began during the reign of King Henry II with our Simon's grandfather. You remember Henry II married Eleanor of Aquitaine, the former wife of the King of France. And the two men fought over a lot of land, Aquitaine, Normandy, Anjou. And the elder Simon, grandfather Simon, had land in Aquitaine, which belonged to Henry II, and in France near Paris, which belonged to the King of France. Now a lot of families were in that same situation, and when war broke out between the two kings, they lost out because they chose one side or the other, and they ended up much poorer after the wars were settled. Our grandfather, Simon, was a very, well, he was a master manipulator, let's just put it that way. And he worked both sides. He kept his land under the King of France, kept his land in Aquitaine, and even married Amicia de Beaumont, the sister and co-heir of Robert, Earl of Leicester, an English noble. Earl Robert died in 1204 without children, the title of Earl of Leicester, and half of the possessions of the earldom passed to Amicia's second son, also called Simon. It would have helped so much in reading history if they would have changed their names more often. You notice that? This Simon, the father of our reformer, was a very strange man, a mixture of adventurer, statesman, and fanatic. He was a zealot who made his fortune attacking, sacking, and destroying the Christian enemies of the Pope. And there were a number of new Christian sects popping up here and there in Europe. And the Popes declared crusade against them. They were heretics because they did not follow the party line. And Simon goes from one to the other, attacking them. He's most famous for being really um, the death of the Cathar sect in France, southern France. There is a book, The Perfect Heresy, by Stephen O'Shea, that covers the battles that ended in the genocide of the Cathars. And Simon, the elder Simon, is a great part of that. He's not an easy man to like. In fact, you don't, don't like him, but he is a fascinating character. The older Simon marries Alice de Montmorency. Alice was as deeply pious as her husband, and she accompanied him on most of his campaigns. Now, we don't know much about Alice. Uh, at least three French chroniclers mention her, but all three of them use very strange language, and I'll share with you one of them. One chronicler said her religion adorned her wisdom and diligence. Her diligence exercised her religion and wisdom. I can't get anything human out of that. There's, there's no personality there. It's very cold and very structured, and all three statements are very similar. Now, it's dangerous to make extrapolations based on just three statements, but you don't get much feeling that was a warm, loving mother. In 1210, King John took the earldom of Leicester away from Dad Simon. He had cause. The older Simon was fighting with King John's brother-in-law at the time. It's a good, good enough excuse. Not that kings needed that much excuse in those days. Simon was doing well in his papal war, so the loss of the English lands was, was not not major. He did keep the title. He still called himself the Earl of Leicester. When he, and, and, but when Simon died, so did control of all the land that the popes had allowed him to gather up. It reverted to the papacy. And so for his sons, Amari and Simon, the loss of the English lands is now a pretty major event. Henry III is now King of England and in his everything French phase. And so Amari petitions for the return of the Earldom of Leicester. As much as Henry loved France and everything French, he did not want divided loyalties 
among his nobles. And so he tells Amari, you can have it back, but you have to renounce your French lands, and you have to be my man. Well, Amari was French. He didn't want to give up his French lands. So instead of claiming Leicester, he renounced his claim in favor of his younger brother, Simon. Simon was a teenager at the time, so for a few years he doesn't claim the land either. Simon was the youngest of seven children. He was born in 1208 and brought up in the castle of Montfort. We know absolutely nothing about his childhood. We do know his parents were not there very often. Both of them were mostly off on campaign. We don't know who raised him. We don't know how he was educated. We do know that in 1229 or 1230, he joined in a baron's revolt against Queen Blanche of France. She was the regent for her son, Louis. And the barons, she, the barons thought she was abusing them, and so they start a war with her. Blanche wins, and the young Simon has to escape to England. Henry receives him kindly. And on 18 August 1231, Simon did homage to the English king for the earldom of Leicester. And so Simon de Montfort is now Earl of Leicester. Simon was described as handsome, charismatic, strong, skilled in tactics and strategy. Not bad for somebody only 23 years old. He was intense, compelling. When he talked, you kind of focused on him. You couldn't seem to take your eyes away. Very self-confident, but hot-tempered, and could be easily pushed all the way to arrogance. There was no do not pass go, do not collect $200 block on his board. The English baron suspected their new peer of being an adventurer, overly ambitious. He was poor and foreign. But then few people are ever neutral about Simon. To this day, English historians are still not neutral. They're either very pro-Simon or very anti-Simon. Simon evidently courted two very wealthy French heiresses unsuccessfully. But on January the 7th, 1238, he privately married King Henry's 23-year-old sister, Eleanor, in the king's chapel. Henry gave the bride away. He even gave up her dowry. But there's a slight problem. Eleanor was a widow. She married William Marshall when she was nine and he was 40. When he died, the 16-year-old widow made a vow she would never marry again. She made the vow in front of the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now she's 23 and she's remarried. The barons and the church have a fit. Any royal marriage affects the succession. And Henry has no children yet. The barons say we should have been consulted. And it wouldn't have been to allow her to marry some foreigner. The Archbishop of Canterbury declares the marriage is a crime. She's breaking her vow. Many people just refuse to even call her by her new name. If we just ignore this, maybe the whole thing will go away. Simon begs and borrows enough money to go to Rome and meet with the Pope. We don't know what he said, but he convinced Pope Gregory IX to grant him a dispensa dispensation for the marriage. The English clergy are stunned. Matthew Paris wrote, the court of Rome reasoned somewhat more subtle than it has given us to understand. But King Henry does have a son and takes Simon out of the direct line of secession. His first son, Edward, is born on 17 June, 1239. Henry announced the glad tidings, and expected a lot of baby gifts to come in, okay? Any gift he thought was too small or too cheap, he sent back 
with a snotty note saying, try again. A jester reportedly said, God has given us this child, but the king sells him to us. <laughs> Simon was one of nine godfathers to the new young king, new young prince, I'm sorry. King Henry later stands godfather for Simon's second son, named Henry for the king. But Henry and the king soon, soon quarrel. We don't know exactly over what. Could have been money. Simon did owe, owe Henry some money. Could have been new papal bulls that Simon did not agree with. Could just have been <coughs> jealousy. But there's major trouble. A furious and spiteful Henry accuses Simon of dishonor, saying he consented to the marriage between Simon and his sister Eleanor only because Eleanor was pregnant. He also rejects the Pope's dispensation and seizes the couple's home in London. So Simon and Eleanor leave for France and Simon's family. Simon never trusts Henry again. Many of the meetings between the two men thereafter are stand-up shouting matches. But the relationship between the two men is not the normal king and subject relationship. So the two, but for the time being, Eleanor and Simon have to leave the country. Now, however the English church may have reacted to the marriage, Simon has one very good friend in the church, a gentleman named Robert Grostest, Bishop of Lincoln. Simon obviously valued their friendship. He kept a large number of the letters that they exchanged. Many historians think it is Grosteste and his influence that changes Simon from a normal, think-for-yourself baron to so improbably a voice for the common people. Simon saved, as I said, many of the letters. He writes notes on them, comments. He even has one dated in 1238 that's discussing a case Simon judged at Leicester, and Grostest thinks he was too harsh. Simon admires and respects him enough to take criticism from him. Now, he sends Simon a letter of condolence for the exile. On 1 April 1240, Simon returns to England to gather supplies and men for a crusade. The fickle Henry welcomes him as if nothing has happened. But Simon joins the Pope's enemy, Frederick II, on crusade. Frederick was king of Sicily, emperor of Germany, and controlled much of Italy. Frederick was a true free thinker, the Pope said, an unbeliever. He was a scholar, a soldier, and way too powerful for the Pope's comfort. Frederick may also have influenced Simon's evolution. The two-year war in the Holy Land changed Simon. He returned deeply pious, often getting up at midnight and spending the rest of the night in vigil. He seeks out the great thinkers of England, his friend Robert Grotesque, of course, but also Walter de Canaloupe and the scholar monks Roger Bacon and Adam Marsh. All four men supported the idea of a government based on charity, justice, and clemency. Before he died, Grostes wrote a treatise defining both a just rule and a tyranny. And it talks about injustice on the national scale. Simon has known personal injustice during the Baron's revolt, certainly from Henry, almost without a doubt he saw it on crusade. Somehow he makes the jump from personal injustice to political injustice. And that's a jump that's hard to make. Most of us don't do it. In 1247, Henry made Simon governor of Gascony. It's the last bit of French territory Henry owns. The country was in turmoil. 
and the wine wasn't coming in like it should have been. So Simon found that the nobles in Gascony were abusing their people. And so he supports the people against the nobles. He applies justice so strictly, the Gascon nobles rebel and complain to Henry. They're not used to being on the other end of justice. Henry has Simon arrested and put on trial for treason. He accuses Simon of overstepping his authority and provoking the rebellion in Gascony. Simon tells Henry, that word is a lie, and were you not my sovereign, it would be an ill hour for you when you dared utter it. Not exactly what you expect a subject to say to a king, but they have a very strange relationship. Simon is acquitted, and he becomes more popular with the English nobles. The trial was so obviously put on. King Henry liked and feared Simon, hated and respected him, sometimes all at the same time. One of the stories that they tell to illustrate that point is that Henry was rowing on the Thames when a thunderstorm came up. Henry ordered the boat to the nearest pier, which happened to be next to a house where Simon de Montfort was staying. Simon came out to assure the king, the storm's over, you're okay. And Henry is supposed to have said, I fear the thunder and lightning exceedingly, but I fear you even more. Still, with all that, Henry gives Simon the strongest, most impenetrable royal castle in the country, Kenilworth Castle. Simon and Eleanor set up their own court at Kenilworth Castle. They call in the great minds, the great artists of the day. Simon adopts fully the identity and the ideals of England. And so he's one of the nobles who forced Henry to call that meeting at Oxford. He's one of the prime players in the writing of the Provisions of Oxford. But during the debates that resulted in the Provisions of Oxford, Somebody asked a very, very dangerous question. How widely do the Magna Carta and the proposed provisions apply? Now, there's absolutely no doubt that the, the nobles can call the king to account. The Magna Carta says so. They may bring grievances to the king and call him to account. In the new provisions of Oxford that they're drafting, it's very clear that free men can also bring their grievances to the king and call the king to account. Nobody has a problem with that. The question that is so dangerous is, do we take it a step further? Do these new provisions in the Magna Carta also mean that free men can call barons to account? How far down does accountability, how far down does the application go. Is the entire hierarchy of authority subject to constraint and accountability? It's a question we're still asking today, and they ask it in 1258. And Simon de Montfort says, yes, the nobles need the same constraints as the king. He understands what our founding fathers fought over in writing our Constitution. Power will corrupt, not may, will. And balance is necessary. Accountability is necessary. That day's meeting ends in outrage and shouting. But the final provisions include the ordinance of the magnets that limits baronial power. Some of the reformers, notably the Earl of Gloucester, refuse to sign them. They will not be accountable. It's okay to limit the king's power. It is not okay for their tenants to call them to account. And they pull out. Simon de Montfort calls them fickle and deceitful. 
And as we know... Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening, and have a great day.